Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fantasy Throwdown Podcast, bringing you the latest in sports news, fantasy analysis, and opinions. Don't forget the hot takes. Can't have a sports show without hot takes these days. What about hot cakes, though? Mm, I want some hot cakes. Now, here's your host, ready to jump into the thick of things, Dwayne Callender. Hello and welcome to the Fantasy Throwdown Podcast. Coming to you on a Saturday morning because of the start of the English Premier League. So we're going to do a recap of the action yesterday with Liverpool getting uh, their victory over Norwich uh, 4-1. to But we're going to do a preview of the upcoming season and just kind of lay out in terms of where I think the standings are going to fall and things to kind of look out for throughout the course of the year. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the Premier League, it is the top flight division in English soccer. Uh, Basically, what you have are the 20 top teams in uh, the English League. Three of them will not be in the league next year because the, the Premier League does uh, involve relegation. So the three worst teams uh, are dropped from the league and play in a lower division where, again, they lose a significant amount of money and would never work in American sports because no American owner would willingly sign up for relegation in the U.S. marketplace. England operates a bit differently because of locations and where some of these teams are located. Uh, in a U.S. marketplace where it's so city-centric and there's only one sports team in a given city, uh, no U.S. owner would actually sign up uh, for that. The, mo- the model works completely differently. I keep getting that asked by soccer folks if relegation would honestly work in uh, the U.S. marketplace and uh, the answer is honestly no, unless you added about two extra sports teams uh, per league. So the NBA would have to have about 60-plus teams in the league. And again, with the amount of money uh, these franchises are worth these days, 
uh, they're not going to risk uh, the chance of being relegated and dropping their uh, franchise value that significantly. So, no, it wouldn't happen. But anyway, uh, we're going to start off with uh, the 20th uh, ranked team uh, that I have in the league. Not necessarily in terms of talent, but this is just where I think the final standings will end up after 38 uh, games in the season. So this is going to play out well into May of 2020. So a lot can change, obviously, uh, in uh, the f- uh, 45-plus weeks uh, to go throughout the year before we uh, even get to uh, May. But um, honestly, I-, I look at this and I say to myself, you know, who's the most likely team to end up at rock bottom? And the answer is, I want to say Newcastle, but I don't think it, they'll be completely rock bottom. But the uh, the closest team that I think ends up rock bottom is newly promoted Sheffield United. Uh, Sheffield United uh, rejoins uh, the Premier League this year after 12 years uh, playing in the championship. And, you know, good story. They, they won the playoff. Uh, you know, they did what they needed uh to do to actually, uh, actually they didn't win the playoff. They got the second, uh, they were the second team, a uh, second place, uh, runner up finisher in, uh, in the championship last year. But truth be told, I, I don't see a whole lot coming from Sheffield. It, it's not as though they had the wealth of resources that some of these other clubs have. I, I think they, in terms of actual finances, they may actually be, uh, dead last in terms of the premiership, in terms of uh, ownership group and capital to actually buy and invest in additional players. So I, I just don't think that they have nearly enough uh, capital to improve upon a championship squad that is going to be overmatched in the Premier League. It, you know, there's n- there's nothing on this roster that really uh, speaks to anything that would be, uh, you know above average in the Premier League, you know, they're they're going to be below average in every single contest. The best they can hope for is be scrappy, make life miserable for every team they play, and hope for as many draws as possible, and try to sneak out some wins against uh, the bottom end teams. The problem is, is that I don't see a whole lot there, to because realistically, in order to avoid relegation in the Premier League, need about 35 points to guarantee safety. This year, I think there are going to be a whole bunch of teams that can't even get to 35 just because I think the top of the league is that good. So, again, this is a case where this more or less uh, comes into the uh, uh, under the category of nice story, not going to end well for them. They're going to get relegated. Uh, I have them as a 20th ranked team. They they could they could be they could make it out and be sixteenth or seventeenth. I'm not saying that, but I, I just think the most likely scenario is that they're dead last in the league. Uh, through no fault of their own. It's just the the way the league works. It, it's a very unforgiving. Whereas number nineteen, this is a completely avoidable situation. That is their own management's making, and by management, I just mean. One owner, Mike Ashley. And of course, Mike Ashley is the owner of Newcastle United. The Geordies, for all intents and purposes, should be a top 10 team in the Premier League every single year. 
They are the dominant team in the, in the Midlands in terms of fan base. They have the largest fan base by far. They have a historic team. They have club history. They have enough resources where they should be able to compete. The reason why they don't compete is the, is because their owner is one of the worst owners in all of professional sports and is a complete and utter cheapskate. And not only is he a cheapskate, he strings people along and toys with their emotions because he promises that he's going to buy players. Then he doesn't follow through on his uh, promise to buy. He promises that he's going to sell the team. And, you know, every single year we get a story of Mike Ashley's going to sell Newcastle and they get all the way up to the finish line and then something falls through. It's, oh, it's a finance check. Oh, well, they didn't agree to take on some of the extra debt that I wanted them to take on, which no one was ever going to agree to. This is Mike Ashley's MO. He finds ways of stringing along the story and keeps you distracted from the actual issue, which is him. And, of course, this year, Newcastle, you know, you look at the signings and I, 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 I you know, the only signing that was any, uh, uh, of any work, well, two signings, I should say, uh, Alan St. Maximin and Jethro Willems are actually good players. The problem is, is that Newcastle lost a ton of fours. They lost Iosi Perez. They lost Sebastian Rondon. And didn't replace them with any forwards. Oh, but here comes the Lowell's, uh, the loan signing. Uh, uh, Joel Linton, again, not nearly the amount of goal production you would want to have in your number one striker. But in order to distract the fans, oh, Newcastle brings back Andy Carroll, which made a whole bunch of buzz in the media on uh, the transfer deadline yesterday. And my reaction was, who bleeping cares? Not to be disrespectful of Andy Carroll, but Andy Carroll hasn't been relevant in four and a half years. Probably more than that. Uh, Andy Carroll in his prime for Newcastle? Yeah, yeah, I'd sign up for that. But Andy injury, injury plagued Andy Carroll? Is lucky if he plays 20 games this year. That is about as much as they can hope for. That is not going to get it done. And Rafa Benitez saw the writing on the wall and what Mike Ashley was going to screw him yet again and just decided, you know what? I've had enough. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to walk away. I did everything I could to keep this team up. And this guy is never going to support me. I'm leaving. And, you know, Rafa Benitez is, whether you like his style or not, it's hard to argue that he's not one of the top, 15 best managers in all of uh, soccer in every single uh, uh, league you want to go to in country. Rafa easily is in the top 15, probably higher. If I, if I really started going hard into the list, it's there's no way you replace a a coach of Benitez's caliber. And so you bring back, uh, you bring back a premier league uh, icon. Well, I shouldn't say icon. Icon's too strong a word. Uh, I'd say Premier League veteran. eh, Maybe I should say, uh, oh no, Manchester United legend. 
I'll put it to you that I'll say it that way. Just because like no one ever remembers Steve Bruce as it being other than he played for Manchester United when they were really good in the nineties. So I'll put it. I'll leave it at that. Um, but you know, never really set the world on fire as a manager, and I can't see a whole lot out of the squad. This squad, I don't see them scoring a ton of goals. And the biggest issue last year was Rafa was like stringing together these draws to keep them up when they weren't playing well because they couldn't put the ball in the back of the net, and their offense is worse this year. I, I don't see how Newcastle avoids relegation. At the very least, they're in the relegation battle up until the last couple of weeks of the year. Best case scenario. To me, that that's usually the sign of players are going to start uh, tuning out because they don't want to have to go through a, an actual fight to stay up again after they had to do that last year with no reinforcements. I can't see that happening again this year with no Rafa Benitez around to inspire them and tactically set them up in the most uh, uh, advantageous position. Moving on to our next squad, we have Norwich, who won the championship, which is the lower division of English football last year, and on paper has just as good a shot at finishing 11th uh, as any team uh, that's in this bottom tier. You know, to be perfectly honest, you know, when I look at Norwich's squad and they won the championship with ease, they have a shot at a very successful season. The problem I see with Norwich is the fact that it's the history of the club. Usually bad things happen uh, to this uh, club, whether it's a bad call in a crucial game, a key injury, a bad transfer window. Something usually comes along to derail this club from actually achieving its potential. And, you know, I don't, I can't quite place my finger on what it is exactly. You know, from uh, their uh, form in the championship last year, they played well defensively. And Timu Puki came out of nowhere to be the top goal scorer. Now, the question is, can uh, Puki actually put up the performances that he did in the championship i don't necessarily think so you know when you actually see him play uh, you know it's hard to describe him i i, I always i got i got a joke with folks uh beforehand he looks as though he came from a, a sunday pickup game and just tried it onto a premier league he looks like someone who who, who basically stormed the field as a fan rather than an actual premier league uh caliber player but you know it's just one of those things where, you know, the guy scores goals. Now, if he performs again in the Premier League, Norwich is going to stay up comfortably. I just have the fear that with Norwich not having any fun, so they only spent a million pounds in the summer uh, transfer window. I just don't think they have enough juice to get over the hump when they face adversity because to me, Norwich is a case of it's not a matter of if, it's when they face adversity, how they're going to respond to it. And I just don't think it'll end well for them. So I think they're going to be the last team to get relegated this year, even though they'll have good performances throughout the year. Uh, this looks to be the squad that shouldn't get relegated, but probably will. 
Next up, number 17, Brighton. And man, I wanted to put this group into the relegation hole because I, there is not a single thing that I liked about what uh, Brighton did. Uh, they barely survived last year. Uh, and, you know, Chris Hewton, uh, their man, well, former manager, I should say, for all of his faults, is by the numbers, very pragmatic will get you as much as he can without over uh risking too much on the table if you know what I'm saying. You know, he plays it he plays a very tight conservative, but you know, if this were a poker match, you know, he'd be the sh- a small stack, but he would be one of the last people left at the table because he would just find ways of staying alive while playing with a small stack. Y- you know, and that's what Norwich, I mean, that's what Brighton is, essentially. Brighton, for all of the bells and whistles of their state-of-the-art stadium, and, you know, they've got funds, they are not Southampton. Now, Southampton has the infrastructure and the talent pool that Brighton wants. Brighton has the money. Southampton has the infrastructure. If they combine forces... This will be a force to be reckoned with in the Premier League. But with them split off, again, I have my deep reservations about Brighton. You know, in a, if they can survive a few more years in the Premier League, then they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Right now, I still think that, you know, trying to commit to a new playing style with a coach uh, in Grand Potter who has not been in the league is always a risk. And more often than not, when you take a risk like this, is when it horribly and spectacularly backfires on you. I would not be surprised to see uh, Brighton in the relegation battle the entire way through the season. To me, this is the most obvious uh, case of a team that's going to be scrapping every single point throughout the season because at the end of the day, I can't see Brighton putting up nearly enough goals to keep themselves safe. And I don't see that defense. And, you know, Matt Ryan did a great job as keeper last year. You know, it is hard to put up back-to-back years of being excellent defensively when you're changing your philosophy. Whenever you're changing your philosophy of how the starting 11 is going to go and tactically what you're going to do, they're always going to be bumps in the road. And I just feel as though uh, Brighton is going to be going through a lot of growing pains. And they're not a squad that can afford to go through growing pains. They need to hit the ground running early and as soon as possible to try to bank up enough points and ride the wave through to uh, another year staying up in the Premier League. But I just think that they're going to get caught up in a relegation battle and just barely avoid relegation. Moving on to our 16th squad, we've got Aston Villa. And Villa could just as easily be in the relegation pool as is. Because the one thing that Villa did, even though they won a promotion through the uh, championship playoff uh, format, is that, you know... (sighs) They've been gone for three years, and Villa 
was dysfunctional for many years before they got relegated from the Premier League uh, to begin with. But, you know, Villa had to get a lot of their uh, structure squared away from a training ground perspective, getting the talent pool back. They've done quite a bit of work. The problem is, is that when Villa got promoted, they did it on the backs of players who were mostly loan transfers from other clubs with no option to buy. So many of the loans got recalled back to their prospective clubs. And Villa realistically did not get a whole ton of guys in the window. The only guy that, uh, you know, that they brought in is a striker named Wesley. Now, I've heard some good things about Wesley. I haven't really seen him play. So, again, this is one where I, I'm wondering where the goals are going to come from. Because when you have over a dozen transfers in and out of the squad, it's a completely different group of players. So, again, they don't have a track record of playing together. And the Premier League is not a forgiving place when it comes to finding chemistry and uh, de- uh, developing rapport with teammates you haven't played with before. So, again, Villa needs to be able to get off to a good start uh, just to survive this first year back in the Premier League. You know, they got a bunch of new signings and guys who were probably going to be looking to prove themselves. But the concern here is, again, when you don't have chemistry, the, that is just begging uh, for a bad start to the year. And a bad start means that Villa is absolutely going to be in a relegation battle throughout the year. And I don't think they have a good enough track record to uh, deflect themselves uh, from that scenario. I think they're going to be in a relegation battle throughout the season. And that's just the way it's going to be for them. Moving on, we got Crystal Palace at 15, which is a dip from where they were last year at 12. Here's the problem. Wilfred Zaha should have been moved. I don't understand what Crystal Palace is doing. This is a terrible game of chicken that they're playing that they're going to lose. You know, they have the best thing they have at uh, Crystal Palace has going is Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson is the former manager for the English national team, well seasoned manager at the Premier League level, will keep a disciplined shape and get them organized week after week with the proper motivation and just getting them into their proper paces throughout the year. The problem is that. Again, it's good, but not a great squad. They got a bunch of good players, a bunch of role players, not any star players. Zaha is the closest thing they have to a star player, and to me, he ain't a star player. He's a very good player, uh, you know, not a great player by any stretch, in my opinion, and not a superstar. But Zaha views himself as one, and... It's a case where you would have been better off selling him uh, at a premium to a club and bringing in some young strikers uh, 
as a provisionary basis to start rebuilding out the squad because Zaha is not staying there long term. They can keep saying whatever they want about not selling him, but it's only going to infuriate Zaha even more so that when the player gets cranky and they don't feel like training hard, it's going to create a vicious cycle where you're constantly left in the loop where you're trying to motivate a guy that doesn't want to be there anymore. It's always a lose-lose situation the longer you hold on to a depreciating asset such as a player that does not want to play for you anymore. You know, maybe Zaha does uh, uh, perform in the early part of the season. I just can't see it happening. I think he's going to sulk and he's going to give 75% effort and he's not a guy that I think is talented enough to get by on just 75% of effort. All right, moving on. We've got Southampton. With, you know, I I want to say Southampton tried to make some uh, distinct changes, but realistically, when you look at uh, what they... Uh, uh, what they did essentially was just more uh, reinforce the fact that they're going to be playing very ugly, ugly football. <laughs> you know, uh, their coach Ralph uh, Hasselhuddle uh, basically advocates for a style that's counterintuitive to what Pep Guardiola does over at Manchester City. Uh, Hassan Huddle basically wants you to play pressing, counterattacking football, and Southampton has the talent to be more expansive with their counterattacks, but the style of play that they're doing is going to be very stifling. So, again, this is a case where I think Southampton will stay out of the relegation battle, but just barely. You know, I think that throughout the year, Southampton will not be able to pull away from the vast majority of these teams. And that, you know, towards the second half of the year, I think they're going to get slowly but surely start getting pulled into the relegation battle because they're not getting nearly enough wins off of the squads that they absolutely should be beating because they're playing such a conservative style. And it leads right into our next uh, team, Burnley. The team that absolutely epitomizes we're not going to play flashy football. We're going to grind you down and wear you out. Uh, Burnley doesn't have a budget, really, you know, to speak of. They play in a not-so-appealing uh, uh, area of uh, England. It's hard to attract free agents uh, to Burnley. They're not like the top tier guys are not going to Burnley. Doesn't matter what you try to slice it as. Some places are not desirable. Burnley happens to be one of them, but they got an excellent coach in Sean Dyche. They got a defensive structure that works for them. They 
essentially established themselves as the grinded out team of the Premier League. They have a good reputation with that. And the standard is the standard with them. They're not going to be overly fancy and get themselves into trouble because they're trying to be something that they're not. Burnley knows what they are. And it's a squad that, you know, on paper could make the top 10. I don't see it happening just because it's another year with these uh, group of players and they're getting a year older. I, I think their window of surprising people has long been shut. And, you know, teams are prepared now for playing Burnley, uh, especially at their home stadium, Turf Moor, uh, and just being knowing full well that it's going to be a miserable afternoon. But, you know, all things considered, uh, Burnley should be fine uh, from a performance standpoint. The, the issue I see with them is just avoiding injury, but I don't necessarily see where they're going to be able to make a run to seriously contend for any type of uh, position in Europe. Uh, you know, I just don't see, I don't see them in the running for uh, top seven, top six, top five, not, not, not even close. So it's one of those things where Burnley, you know, they are what they are. They're not going to deviate from that. And that's really what it comes down to. So sometimes you, you're going to need to have those teams that aren't going to be overly ambitious and oversell themselves, which leads us to West Ham because West Ham constantly oversells themselves and sometimes ends up getting themselves into way too much trouble than it's worth. West Ham spent a lot of money in the summer trying to become a, a top six club. And I'm, I'm not sure they're even going to make top 10. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a case where sometimes too many moving parts can be a bad thing because I, I don't see where West Ham is going to have the consistency with uh, Manuel Pellegrini, given the amount of changes that have been made to the squad uh, over the past summer, you know, I just, I just see this as a potential scenario where they're going to run into a number of issues throughout the year. And I don't necessarily think that they're all that well set up, you know, again, they have high expectations. So Manuel Pellegrini uh, is very much one of the first uh, managers I expect to get fired this year. Uh, not through any fault of his own. It's just the desires of the team, uh, I feel, are a bit unrealistic given the competition that West Ham is going to be facing this year. Uh, I, I don't see too many easy points coming from that squad. Uh either in the win column or in the loss column. It, you know, they're going to be there, but I, I just I just don't see them doing anything of, of significant importance uh, throughout the year. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's uh, just my assessment of the situation. 
Next up, we got Watford. And Watford, even though they're going to be ranked 11th, Watford is the kind of squad that I'm I'm very much worried about. Because, you know, even though I had them as 11th, it wouldn't shock me if Watford ended up being in a relegation battle either. Uh, you know, Watford, when I looked at the numbers, I couldn't believe it, but Watford had the oldest starting 11 grouping in the entire Premier League. Uh, the average age of the starting 11 for Watford is uh, almost 30 years old. That is cutting it real close in terms of the balance you want on your squad. Because, again, Watford fancies themselves as the next big club to emerge. Uh, when in reality, they are a poor man's Everton. Uh, they desperately want to surpass Everton, but they are a poor man's Everton. Uh, you know, Watford's board will fire managers for not living up to expectations. Uh, I was surprised that Javi Garcia got to keep his uh, job uh, after the club lost 6-0 in the FA Cup final to Manchester City. I I thought he might have been done right then and there since they didn't win any club titles. And, uh, you know, there's nothing of nor of, of, uh, of note uh, from a domestic side. I, I think Watford's board is going to be very impatient. Uh, they need a strong start to the year uh, because the way they finished off last season was not encouraging uh, because they were losing matches well ahead of that FA Cup final and then to get drubbed out of Wembley Stadium. Uh, it, it does something to your uh, confidence. I don't care who you are. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have some... Big question marks about Watford. I'm going to keep them at 11 just because the talent on the squad, I think, should be able to get them there. It's just that I don't necessarily believe that uh, Watford uh, will live up to the expectations that their board has. And I think it's more likely that they burn themselves uh, in the process. But, you know, sometimes you got to take risks, and I think uh, Wofford's board is uh, doing that. I think they're going to try to be stable for once, but this might not actually be the good, the best of years to take the more uh, wait-and-see approach to uh, managing a team throughout the season. Now, moving on, we have... The 10th place team, Bournemouth. And, you know, anyhow, their manager has done a phenomenal job transforming Bournemouth uh, into a true success story in the Premier League. Uh, However, this goes down this year. Uh, You know, they usually perform well enough to avoid any whiff of a relegation battle. And we'll see how uh, it moves uh, going forward. But, uh, you know, I think Bournemouth is one of those clubs that, you know, if they put in cruise control, they should still comfortably be a top 12 side. I, You know, the talent that they have in that squad, uh, 
definitely uh, gives them more credibility uh, as opposed to a Brighton that does not necessarily have the offensive output that they can demonstrate. And so it kind of puts it into perspective that uh, the biggest thing that could uh, derail Bournemouth is if Eddie Howe uh, thinks about uh, grander expectations, uh, you know, whether it be uh, taking uh, a larger profile uh, managerial spot uh, for one of the big six clubs, if something goes awry, or taking over a Watford if uh, they fire their manager. You know, th- there are ways about it, uh, but uh, to me, the biggest thing is can they keep uh, the family intact, uh, not worry about, uh, you know, not worry about uh, any prospective club trying to poach anyhow. You know, keep it self-contained. Bournemouth will be fine. It's when guys start uh, deviating from the script of what they're doing or, again, how decides to have a wandering eye and move on to a different club. You know, it, it's... I have a difficult time seeing bad things happening for Bournemouth this year, which is why I've got them in the top 10 spot. Uh, I, I think there are enough question marks on some of the other teams I've already covered here uh, that explain away why I feel uh, Bournemouth uh, uh, should be fired up for the remainder of the season. All right, so here is where the rubber meets the road. Getting inside that top 10. At number nine, and honestly, this is not a knock on them because I honestly think all the teams in this range have the capability of finishing within the top six because I truly believe that between Chelsea, Manchester United, or even Arsenal, all those teams have enough question marks that they can easily finish out of the top six for the first time in years. So at number nine, I've got Leicester City. And this is where they finished last year uh, uh, as well. But, you know, they have the potential of finishing higher. It's just that last year, you know, they were, for lack of a better term, a mess. Uh, Claude Puel just did not have any juice whatsoever within that entire organization. The players didn't like him. The management uh, seemed to be constantly on the verge of firing him until they finally did. Uh, so in comes Brendan Rodgers, the former Liverpool uh, boss. And, you know, immediately the team responded. I think uh, Rodgers has the capability of getting even more out of the squad this year. It's not as talented right now because they recently sold... Harry Maguire uh, to Manchester United and for a record fee for a defender, which again, I, I don't know what Manchester United is really doing. It's, it's a desperation buy, if anything, to show that Manchester United could still spend money uh, because there was no one, no one in the entire premier, like amongst the uh, premier league pundits, that would actually argue that Harry Maguire is a better defender than Virgil van Dijk. You know, Maguire is a beneficiary of the economics of the situation 
uh, with escalating contracts that, you know, because Van Dyke went for 90 million pounds, that United has to spend 94 million pounds. It's it's ludicrous to even suggest that. They're not even... I, I don't even think it's particularly close between Harry Maguire and Virgil Van Dyke. So, you know, me personally, I don't think it's going to be that significant of a drop-off for Leicester's defense. It's just the fact that because the transfer came so late in the window, uh, because it, this was a back-and-forth all summer long between United and Leicester City, Leicester really didn't get to bring in a whole ton of guys uh, to be honest, and they're still missing that piece uh, to link uh, to uh, to substitute for the loss of Riyad Mahrez because you know, for lack of a better term, when they won the Premier League in 2015, uh, you know, it was a Cinderella story of the ages. Uh, Mahrez and Vardy were an unstoppable combo that year. And they've never quite been able to recapture that magic. When they came back the following year, Mares already had his sights on leaving the club, so he wasn't putting in 110 percent uh, as he could have. You know, you're starting to see some of those flashes again now that he's over in Manchester City and getting opportunities to play. But you know, still never quite capture that, and he may never capture that form again. Fardy, on the other hand has been pretty consistent in terms of his production. Now, is he the best striker in the Premier League? Not even close. Is he top five? I still don't think he's top five. But he's close enough in that category in terms of what he does, and that's poach goals. He knows how to get in position, and if you can give him service, he's going to put up numbers for you. And that's why Leicester is still going to be in the hunt throughout the entire Premier League campaign. Even if the defense suffers and the midfield play isn't quite up to snuff, I still think they have the opportunity to do quite a bit of damage uh, in the league this year and still have an outside shot of finishing uh, in the top six. The only reason why I don't think it happens is is if uh, they get off to a slow start, which is what I'm anticipating. Uh, just because I don't think they have enough quality of talent in the early stages to get the results that they need against the big boys uh, to be in the running for top six at the end of the year. I think if they can be in in the top ten by the winter transfer period and being able to use some of that Harry Maguire money to bring in someone to... uh, bolster that attack then we're talking where they can actually finish sixth and uh and and be in that uh, mix for a guaranteed europa spot uh but um you know top seven definite possibility uh but i still think it's more likely that they settle in that eight nine range and that's where uh I think they'll end up being, but you know, if they can do a good bit of business in the uh, winter transfer window, I do think Lester has a legitimate shot. I just don't think that their odds are significantly better than some of the other teams we're going to be talking about here. Next up, we got Everton in the number eight slot uh, in my rankings. You know, Everton wants to be a top six club. That's been their aspiration for the last decade plus. In, you know, 
to be honest, they've squandered every opportunity given to them, uh, to be honest. So I have no sympathy for them. You know, you had Romelu Lukaku in his prime doing damage. You've you've had players come in and out of that squad over the years. When you, you had enough talent in that Everton squad to make it to the top six. And for whatever reason, Everton just never lives up to that full billing. And, you know, you can blame Ronald Koeman. You can blame uh, having uh, the aspirations that they did and not being able to execute uh, when you had managers uh, along the lines of Roberto Martinez uh, butchering golden opportunities. You know, again, I don't feel sorry for Everton one bit. Everton deserves all the criticism they get for squandering talent because realistically the amount of guys that have come through those doors there's not a ch- they should have at least had a top 6 uh uh 6 uh, f- uh finish uh the vast majority of this decade they, the fact that they've struggled as much as they have is really just embarrassing to be honest i, I you know and again they got in more talent they they were able to sign Moises Keane, who has the potential to be the breakout uh, player under twenty one in the entire Premier League. Not not at uh, he's not at Chelsea. He's not at Manchester United. He's not at Arsenal. He's not at Spurs. He's at Everton, and he was a stud at Juventus. He showed incredible promise. He has the potential of being the breakout player this year, and he's on Everton. Everton, again, they should be a top six club. Will I put them in the top six? No. I actually think they have worse odds of making top six than Leicester. But it's not for lack of talent. You know, they they still have Richarlison. They still have Gilfie Sigurdsson. Now, I'm not a huge Gilfie Sigurdsson fan because, to me, over the course of a season, Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, brings out the fact that he's more of a cup-type player and a tournament-type player than he is a season-long player. He can do it for spurts and be a high-level performer, but he can't do it over a sustained period of time throughout the entire course of a year. He can only do it in spurts, and his entire career has borne that out. Great for cup competitions in tournaments. So if you're at Euro or World Cup, you want to have a Gilfie Sigurdsson on your squad. Season long, you're going to run into some issues with him not showing up for certain games. And in the Premier League, you got to be on more often than not. It, it, like, you can have a bad patch, but even when you're going through your bad patch, you got to figure out a way of just being productive. And that's the thing that I worry about with Everton is that it's still a bunch of players that are so hot and cold that they can't get enough traction to sustain being a top six club because that's what it takes. You have to be consistent enough in your preparation and being able to grind out points even when you don't have your A game. You know, 
get by with a B minus game and get some points. Don't drop points. But that's what Everton consistently does. I have no doubt that they're going to lose to uh, at least one or two of the teams that are going to be in relegation battles throughout the year. Hell, they may even lose to Sheffield. I, I I wouldn't be shocked by that at all. Because that's the thing about Everton. They can look great against Liverpool in a derby matchup and then get smoked by a team like Norwich or Brighton. There is nothing about Everton's performances that shocks me anymore. Because that's kind of how their club mentality is. And I don't, you know, I don't even blame Marco Silva. Because I think Marco Silva is one of the best managers in the Premier League. I just think that there's a mentality, for whatever reason, at Everton that, eh, if you do well enough, nothing bad's going to happen to you. And... Because all they're going to do is fire the manager. They always blame the manager. They don't necessarily hold players' feet to the fire. You know, and I think Marco Silva's trying to change that culture. But when the management team, and Everton did this a couple of times last year, where they were on uh, Marco Silva's ass, like, from the jump. Uh, You know, again, I know they want immediate results. But when you're trying to change a club's mentality from being a consistent underperformer, it is really hard uh, to be able to do that successfully. I, I, you know, I don't know if uh, Marco Silva is going to be able to see things through in a successful manner with Everton and be given the opportunity of doing the job the right way. I don't know. I really don't know. Because if Silva starts out slow again this year, they may fire him, and it won't be his fault, in my opinion. I, I know, and I know I just talked up Keen, but there's, there's just something off with that club, like whatever it is in that locker room, that. Players don't feel the need to that they need to grind out games that they need to grind out uh, throughout the year. It's just my opinion, and that's my biggest knock on Everton. They have the talent to be a top four squad, but I I don't know if they'll ever realize that potential. I I just don't. Uh, but you know, if it happens this year, you know, so be it. I, I'll just be looking for when they start stubbing their toes against clubs that they should be trouncing easily. But, uh, you know, uh, that's enough about Everton. Here comes one of the surprise uh, selections that I had in my rankings. But, you know, on the face of it, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. But I know for folks uh, who are more traditional in terms of where Premier League clubs typically should finish, it, it is going to be a shocking uh, statement. But I think the number seven team is going to be Chelsea. And Chelsea finished in third place last year. But Chelsea's in a bad position because Chelsea was hit with a transfer ban uh, by the, uh, uh, the FA. And it's a two-year transfer ban. Chelsea tried to get out of it, but no one's coming in, uh, coming in to Chelsea to help them for a while. And with that transfer ban in place, 
Eden Hazard saw the writing on the wall and made sure he got his transfer out of uh, Chelsea. He gave him he gave him one hell of a season last year as a uh, going away gift to make sure that they uh, got back into Champions League. But you know, here's the thing: uh, Frank Lampard, club legend, comes in to be the new manager for. Uh, uh, for Chelsea after Mauricio Sarri wore out his welcome quickly. And to be honest, I think Chelsea would have been a disaster if Sarri stayed on another year. Sarri said he wanted to pursue other opportunities and took the Juventus job uh, like right off the bat. But, you know, I, I, I look at it. I look at this Chelsea squad and I see talent throughout the roster in Golo Conte is the best holding midfielder without question in the Premier League. For whatever reason, Sarri decided to use him as an advanced midfielder to distribute the ball. I, I I don't get it. I don't get the fascination that Chelsea has with Jorginho because he still stayed in the squad when I thought there were multiple times last year Chelsea was exposed for Jorginho's lack of ability when he gets pressed to be able to dribble out of the press. And I think it was a hindrance to Chelsea more often than not. Jorginho plays a role that Conte should be playing. And they're a better team with Conte than Jorginho. I don't think it's even close. But the problem is with the transfer ban, they can't bring in anyone to get Jorginho out of there and bring in someone that's going to help balance out that roster. Uh, William is going to have to step up and do a lot of the things Hazard did, but I don't think William is the caliber of player to put up nearly the offensive production that they're going to need to deliver for Chelsea. And, you know, Christian Pulisic, uh, uh, the American wonder kid, who is the whole basis that Chelsea brought in right before the band hit, and is going to be the feature person on NBC Sports uh, throughout the uh, throughout the fall uh, this year and winter of how they're going to promote Chelsea. You know, I like Pulisic, but the Premier League is not a forgiving place, and Pulisic was not a feature player when he was at Borussia Dortmund. You know, to expect Pulisic to be able to again be part of the group to uh, supplant. Eden Hazard, that's a tall order. The problem I see with Chelsea this year and why I don't think they're going to be in the top six this year is the fact that the transfer ban, it's a big deal, especially if you can't, uh, if you run into injuries. Chelsea has no support coming in. I mean, all they're going to be able to rely upon is their academy players, which are young players that aren't going to be physically. I don't think they're going to be uh, physically fit from a uh, physicality standpoint when it gets into the winter months and it gets ugly in uh, in terms of football weather and you've got young players trying to uh, supplant roles that you would normally have veterans doing. I think Chelsea's going to drop off in a bad way in the second half of the year. It's not that they can't compete, but there are two areas where I see they're going to be clearly deficient as. Up front at the top, because you got Bacuani, who has played well in a striker role everywhere except Chelsea. Chelsea had to recall Bacuani 
because they had no other option. They they had to bring back Tammy Abraham, uh, who was on loan, uh, uh, and I'm blanking on where Tammy Abraham was on loan to, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was in uh, in the championship. Uh, but you know, Abraham, big question mark. Can he do it in the Premier League as a striker? That's one of the reasons why Chelsea kept loaning him out because he wasn't showing enough uh, up front uh, to do it. You know, <laughs> Olivier Giroud, you know, I always felt had a bad rap at Arsenal, but he was always a striker 1B type of player. He can't be your lone striker because that doesn't work because he doesn't produce enough goals consistently and he takes off vast stretches. That's why he was used in more of a super sub role. Now he's going to actually have to be in that. We need you to be a number one striker type of role. Uh, unless Tammy Abraham can solidify that role early. I think they're going to end up having to play Drew a lot more than they really would like to. And I don't think it's going to be a very pretty experiment. And then you have Mason Mount. Again, an academy player that they have high hopes for. But again, another big question mark. I don't see the goals in Chelsea squad because they were so reliant on Aiden Hazard that, you know, I don't think people truly appreciated how much value Aiden Hazard brought to that club. I think he was the most valuable player in the Premier League the last three years running. And you could talk all you want about Salah or a number of the players on Manchester City, but I think Hazard was the MVP of the Premier If being perfectly honest, I think Hazard was the MVP of the Premier League the last three years running. I mean, even when Chelsea wasn't playing well, it was because Hazard's not playing well. Like, you know where Chelsea's going, where Hazard's going. To me, that's what an MVP is. It's like, it decides exactly what your team's going to be. And now he's gone. And I don't know exactly what to make of Chelsea. They got a ton of talent, but they got so many question marks up front. And the fact that they don't have anyone in terms of reliable replacement depth-wise, I think any kind of injury bug that hits this club is going to sink them immediately. And that's a very scary proposition because I know how impatient Chelsea fans can be. And they're going to expect Frank Lampard to be competing for top four throughout the year. And I think that's just a way unrealistic of a goal. Not for nothing. Chelsea finished with 72 points last year. And I think it would be a miracle they even come close to 70. I I think that this is probably a club that's going to be in the low 60 range. And again, I... Is it possible that they get leapt, uh, leaped over by Leicester and Everton this year? Yeah. I, I think that there's a real chance that Chelsea uh, finishes within the top 10, but they end up being the ninth place seed. I, I can easily see them uh, finishing ninth this year, and it would not be a shock. Now, if some of the young players come through and look like a million bucks, then yeah, business as usual for Chelsea and that they're in the top four and and uh, maybe finish top three. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I just think it's highly unlikely that every single one of those young players hits. You know, 
and that's the standard that they're, they're going to need because, again, nobody's coming in into the uh, in the winter transfer window. So if anybody gets unhappy there with their playing time, anybody gets injured, they're kind of up a creek without a paddle. All right. Coming up to our number six squad. And this is a squad that everyone says is going to have trouble this year. And I, you know, I, I really don't think so. The, uh, so I'm talking about Wolves. So Wolverhampton Wanderers, uh, they were a promoted team last year. Uh, I told people to look out for them. Uh, and people were surprised that they finished seventh. I wasn't. Uh, you know, Wolves play a style of football that is not common in the Premier League. And it's still not common. They play, uh, they they have a very Portuguese-based uh, philosophy in terms of uh, of attacking style. They're going to be on a counterattack, but the defensive shape is very much uh, what you would see out of the Portuguese squads that, that you see out of sport, uh, Sporting or Porto or Benfica. It's a very defensive style, tactically sound, not going to expose themselves to too much danger. The biggest issues that uh, Wolves ran into last year is that they didn't perform well against the bottom tier clubs. The biggest uh, biggest reason why they didn't finish top six last year was they did not get the results against the bottom feeding clubs that they needed to to be a top six club. When it came to taking points off of the big six, nobody took more points off of the big six uh, outside of the big six than Wolves. They... They got results. They got wins. They they were able to draw uh, on the road against uh, big six uh, sides, and it wasn't close. They were in competition with every single one of those teams. Early on this year, they've got uh, they got a, a home matchup against uh, Manchester United, and I think they can win that one outright. I really do. Uh, you know, I really like Wolves this year. I know. Playing in Europa could be an issue because, you know, they're going to play a bunch of games uh, before the end of August in Europa uh, just to try to make the group stages. You know, if they make it into the group stages for Europa, they're going to be playing a bunch of midweek games and then having to play on the weekends in the Premier League. And teams that have been in that road, uh, you've Leicester comes to mind, Burnley last year. Those aren't necessarily squads that were the best equipped to handle that. Leicester, from a defensive standpoint, was always going to be a mess in Europa with that squad because they had an aging backline when they won the Premier League title, and it it burned them uh, the following year because they just couldn't keep up with the Europa uh, performances and do dual duty with the Premier League uh, the fo- uh, the following weekend because, again, aging back line, mistakes are going to happen. Burnley, Burnley just doesn't score enough goals to compete in a competition like Europa, so they were always going to have trouble. Wolves are very creative in the midfield. They hit you on the counterattack, and they're very sound defensively. The biggest thing that Wolves got into trouble with was on set pieces against lower tier sides that they should be better against. But you know what? It's one of those classic things where, from a psychology standpoint, you don't necessarily get up for those games against lesser tier squads. It's human nature. 
But I think in year two, they clean that part up, uh, part up. And I think that's where you're going to see Wolves be an impact player in the Premier League and actually make the top six. That's why I I see them being able to uh, get close to 70 points this year and if, uh, and finish it in the sixth spot. It may not happen. There, there are a number of reasons they could get they can get more injured because uh, they were relatively healthy last year. But there's always a chance that they could get injured uh, and get banged up because of the increased workload. But I don't really see a whole lot of flaws with this team. I really don't. When you play the uh, quality style that they do, you're going to be able to get results, even if you don't have your A game. And that's what you need to be a top six club. You need to be able to uh, not have question marks and get results when you need them. And I think Wolves are more than capable of doing so. All right, at number five, we have Manchester United. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to have a trial by fire because after the hot star he got off to last year, he was dreadful to end the year. And there really weren't any major signings done by United other than Harry Maguire. They're they're rolling the dice that they're attacking up front with uh, Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial is going to be enough. Uh, you know, people are talking up Mason Greenwood. The kid, the kid better be able to put up double digit goals because I don't see between. Uh, Marshall and Rashford, the consistency to be enough of a threat to win a top four spot if Mason Greenwood doesn't produce this year. And that's the problem with United. You know, McGuire's going to help them defensively just because it means that they won't have to play Phil Jones ever again. Um, (laughs) And uh, Lindelof is a question mark on the back line. But, you know, United, well, Luke Shaw's a back a question mark on the back line too for United. To be perfectly honest, you know the biggest issue with United is the fact that, you know, I still think Paul Pugba wants to lead that club. He says he's going to stay, but I don't trust him. <laughs> it's just like I, everything about this club with United seems turbulent, and it's been turbulent ever since uh, Sir Alex Ferguson left. Uh, in 2013, they just have not had any consistency at all in the position. You know, the marriage with uh, Jose Mourinho was always going to end badly. It was just a matter of when it was going to end badly. And the three, uh, the, uh, the three year, uh, curse with Mourinho reared its head again. Uh, but you know, United's been trying to do quick-term fixes, and they need a long-term solution. I'm not sure if uh, Solskjaer is that solution, but, you know, United supporters have got to be a little bit more patient with this squad because they they can't shotgun this again. Like, if you do enough resets with the squad, uh, you're going... You know, as much money as Manchester United makes, at a certain point, they're 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 gonna be up against it because they the wage bills that they've been paying out over the years, 
have just been absurd. You know, the, I mean, Alexis Sanchez has been such a complete another bust for them that even with Mkhitaryan not doing pretty much anything for Arsenal, it's still Arsenal who won that deal. And Arsenal, you know, by and large, had no business winning any deals for how long uh, we let uh, Sanchez depreciate not wanting to be at the club. But uh, in terms of United, again, you, you're letting Lukaku go to enter. I'm not sure if there's enough there to legitimately be a top four squad. I'm going to give him benefit of the doubt, but there's a real chance that United is the squad that ends up being a top seven or eight squad and Chelsea finishes ahead of them this year. I just think United has a few, uh, a slight smidge less question marks than Chelsea. I think Wolves are going to be there in that six spot regardless, but I could easily flip-flop United and Chelsea because they have a number of the same questions. It's just that, again, I think Chelsea has more question marks up top. I do think that Rashford and Martial are capable of scoring when they're relatively happy and not you know, getting screamed at by Jose Mourinho. So I do think that there's potential there. But this has the potential of going badly for United, and the supporters need to be at least cognizant of that. Uh, you know, even if uh, I, I'm I'm still out on the fence as to if Solskjaer is actually the long-term solution at United at this point, with the way things have gone with their manager uh, managers of late, they need some semblance of stability. So. Uh, you know, you can call it too big to fail, but that's where United is. They cannot go through another massive overhaul in the roster again. They got to figure it out and figure it out quickly because they've already lost ground to Manchester City, and I'm not sure they will ever be able to truly get back on that same level until they have an organization shift where they're planning out the goals for the next three to five years instead of the next 18 months, which seems to have been their strategy for the last couple of years is that they, they're abruptly changing strategy after one year, and then after six months you know, of having a coach on a hot seat, they're, they're making the gradual transition of shifting away from that coach because – Mourinho looked to be on the way out after 18 months. It took a little bit longer for it to happen, but the signs were already there. That can't happen with Solskjaer. He needs that full length of time this year and next year to even get a semblance of what this team's going to be down the road. Moving on to the number four squad. My squad, Arsenal. And believe me, this is not me trying to be a homer. This is me just acknowledging that Arsenal spent money this summer 
I don't think they spend it the best way possible, but, you know, it is what it is. Arsenal uh, brought in uh, Nicolas Pepe to bolster the attack, but the most important uh, move Arsenal made uh, in this summer window is they got Danny Ceballos from Real Madrid. I'm not sure they got him on a loan, and it doesn't seem that there's going to be any sort of buyback option, but getting Ceballos alone is a coup. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, uh, I, I, actually, I don't know why I said Real Madrid. It's Barcelona. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure why uh, Ceballos uh, was moved. You know, to be honest, he's an incredible boost to the midfield. He's uh, actually, no, he is a Real Madrid. What am I? See, this is where sometimes. My mind plays tricks on me. He was a Real Madrid player. Uh, I should have trusted my gut, but uh, he's a, a very good uh, midfield player, and you know, good from holding midfield. Uh, controls the center of the, uh, the pitch. Can actually uh, get the passing, uh, uh, passing, uh, uh, passing out from the back. Control, uh, bring the ball up. You know, uh, he brings a lot of the features that they've been missing for so many years because, again, Arsenal has not had a true holding midfielder in a while. One of the biggest things that I've seen last year was uh, Luke uh, Torreira did a very good job for Arsenal. I don't think it was necessarily a natural fit for him, uh, Lucas Torreira, being, you know, a holding midfielder. But, you know, Torreira was a godsend. Being able to pair Torreira and Sabalos together, I think, is going to up to uh, Lucas Torreira's game quite a bit. Because I think it'll, it'll give him a little bit more flexibility... Uh, to focus on some of the defensive issues that, you know, will plague Arsenal throughout the year. Because here's the bottom line. Arsenal signed uh, Kieran Turney from uh, Celtic for quite a bit of money. I'm still not sure that was necessarily the best signing uh, Arsenal could have done. But Arsenal needs as many players on the back line as humanly possible. Because Arsenal's back line last year would have easily been the worst back line to have ever qualified for Champions League football in history. I, I, I it's like it, it, from a power uh, from a power soccer federation. I'm not talking about the uh, offshoot federations that you know they can coast through. Uh, Coast through uh, as the the best team in uh, a single a single uh, bid li- league. I'm talking about a power uh, conference where you got multiple teams that are making Champions League because Arsenal's backline was an absolute sieve. They would get, I mean, they would get treaded in ways you you'd look at them and you would honestly wonder if they've ever played center back, left back. Or right back ever before in their lives. Because you'd look at them and you'd honestly say to themselves, you would get scolded in 
a junior league game uh, with kids for some of the defensive gaps that Arsenal would have. And it would happen consistently, like clearing the ball into your own box. Why would you do that? No, no, no one knows. No one knows or can figure out some of the logic that Arsenal's defenders employed last year. So having signings, one would assume, can only help. The one thing that I see happening with Arsenal, though, is that they also signed David Luiz. And David Luiz, while he is an upgrade over anyone that Arsenal currently had as a center back, David Luiz, uh, uh, coming over from Chelsea, is someone who is prone to have multiple gaffes in a game. He can he can do three spectacular plays and two head scratching plays, and no one would be surprised whatsoever. When you add David Luiz to a questionable backline already for Arsenal, it's basically throwing a lit match with a can of gasoline around and expecting there not to be an explosion. Like, there are going to be games where Arsenal gives up a ton of goals. I think Arsenal has a good chance of giving up even more goals than they did last year because Arsenal conceded over 50 goals last year, and I think they're going to concede more goals this year. (laughs) <laughs> to, to be honest, it's just the fact that because of the signings that they've made, I think that Arsenal's attack, I think it might actually score more goals than Liverpool this year. To be honest, if Pepe is even close to what he's been advertised as, and if you give a longer leash to Alexander Lacazette and Obama Yang. I think uh, because Obama Yang has the potential of winning the Golden Boot this year again, uh, it's entirely possible uh, for Obama Yang to be in the running for Golden Boot uh, for the Premier League. I think that Arsenal's attack, combined with more attacking defenders, we're going to still give up goals. They are offensively upgrades over the squad we had last year. I think Arsenal has the second best attacking squad in the Premier League. I think I think they have a better uh, attacking squad than uh, Tottenham. I think they have a better attacking squad than Liverpool. The thing that will hold Arsenal back is I still think they're going to concede. Uh, I still think they're going to concede a ton of goals. I think there might even be a relatively good shot they're going to concede more goals than they did last year. It's a better defensive unit, no question, but it's also a more attack-minded unit than it was last year. So I still think uh, the potential for giving up goals is still there. I don't think that's uh, necessarily going to change. The only thing that I see changing is that Unai Emery, uh, Arsenal's manager, is going to look at this and say, you know, if I'm going to get the results that I need against the big clubs, I'm going to have to be a bit more expansive, which truth be told last year, he was incredibly conservative with the offensive selections against top squads and then opened it up to the lower tier squads and gave up a bunch of goals to the lower tier squads. But I think Arsenal's going to have to try to win games three to two, four to two, rather than trying to grind out a two, one victory. I just don't think that's in the makeup of, the squad, I think, you know, 
maybe they'll have a couple of games where they can see things through. But one of the most easiest bets that I had all of last year was Arsenal conceding first and Arsenal conceding a goal when they're away from home. Uh, When they're away from the Emirates, Arsenal conceded a goal every single game in the season last year, if I recall correctly, with the exception of Watford, because Watford got a red card in the first 10 minutes of the game. Outside of that, Arsenal basically conceded every uh, every single time they were on the road last year. They may be better at it this year, but I'm not expecting a whole lot of improvements. And again, I still think based off of some of the teams that they're going to be going up against, because Spurs aren't going anywhere, Liverpool's not going anywhere, Man City definitely isn't going anywhere, and they got a healthy Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, Arsenal is going to give up goals. There's no doubt about it, especially against the big six uh, clubs. The question is, can Arsenal make sure that they keep scoring goals against lesser-tier squads? That's going to be the difference of if they're going to make top four or not. Can't be... Can't be dropping points to Crystal Palace like they did at the Atenal end of last year. Like the thing about Arsenal is that they are always at risk of Arsenaling, and that's why it's a verb because come March, Arsenal is always at risk of dropping points when they shouldn't be dropping points. There's no way that they should have made Champions League last year when they were in the best position to do so out of all the squads because Chelsea and Tottenham. We're able to leap over Arsenal when Arsenal had the easiest schedule down the stretch. It's inexplicable how that seems to happen year after year for Arsenal, but it did. I think because of the issues that Chelsea and United have, this is Arsenal's year to get back into Champions League almost by default because they made a bunch of signings that their competitors couldn't quite do for a myriad of reasons. And while the defense is still going to be a huge, huge question mark, Arsenal should still be able to have enough offensive firepower against the, uh, the bottom end of the table that they'll get it. They'll get just enough points to get into top four. They're not even going to be close to competing for top three, but I think they'll be in uh, uh, able to finish it out uh, to get a top uh, top four spot. Coming in at number three is Tottenham. So here's the thing with Spurs. They finally, finally manage to get close to over the hump. Being able to get into the Champions League final should give them the confidence finally to make a breakthrough at some type of tournament level this year. So Spurs has not won a trophy of any legitimate sort in over a decade. If you're going to be uh, pr- uh, promoting yourself as a top-tier club, you got a state-of-the-art stadium. You've got, you know, a squad that, by and large, you've got a bunch of good signings. Uh, Dombele. Uh, Ryan Sessegnon, uh, Los Celso. Like, these are transfer targets that I wish Arsenal 
what was going after. Like, so, you know, one of the things that when you're following, uh, you're following summer transfers and just, you know, tearing my hair out is that, you know, I see a bunch of players that I wanted on Arsenal for years. And Lucas Moore being near the top of the list because I, I thought Lucas Moore was a perfect fit for the Premier League. One of them at Arsenal. Of course, Arsenal doesn't even bother entertaining the thought of signing him. It never, was never even serious con- uh, concession. Lucas Moore comes into Spurs last year and does incredibly well and gets him into the Champions League final with a hat trick, no less. It annoys me having to talk good things about Spurs, but I will say this. As much as I criticize Spurs for not having the ambition to go hard after a trophy, realistically, they are the clear-cut third-best team in the Premier League without question. You know, if it weren't the fact that Liverpool and Man City are so stacked right now, I would say Spurs would have a legitimate shot at the title. The problem is, I just think that they're a little bit better. Uh, in ter- uh, I mean, in terms of uh, squads, I think uh, Liverpool and Man City are just a little bit better. They have the depth that Tottenham doesn't because Liverpool and Man City have the resources to spend the extra bit to have those bench players that are overqualified to be bench players, but at least understand the role well enough that, you know, they can come off the bench and get the job done. I don't think Spurs necessarily has that comfort. And as you may have noticed, I haven't mentioned Harry Kane once. Harry Kane is the face of this uh, Spurs squad. Is he the most important player on the Spurs squad? I think yes, but I don't think it's nearly as... uh, as prominent as in years past. Yes, Harry Kane is going to have to put up the goals again. But I think with the amount of players that Spurs have been able to bring in, you know, even if they lose Christian Eriksen, which I think is highly likely, Spurs definitely has enough talent to be able to replicate the uh, performances that they've been able to get out of Christian Eriksen the last couple of years. You know, I I do think that, you know, uh, by and large, Spurs, you know, when, when you start looking up and down the roster, they're going to be in the mix, at least for the early part of the year. I think they'll probably end up ta- uh, tailing off, uh, towards the second half of the year. But again, it's going to be a tough squad to get uh, points against when you're a top six club. I I do think that, you know, Manchester City is going to struggle getting a win against Spurs. I think Spurs ends up being just that tough of matchup. Uh, But again, my issue with Spurs is, you know, they are, you know, they are still more likely than uh, Liverpool and Man City to drop points against squads that they're clearly better than. So 
Could I see them losing to a Watford or West Ham? You know, Southampton type of squad? Yeah, I can. And that's part of the problem with Spurs is that until they can clean up some of those kinds of results, that's why they're not going to be, in my opinion, a serious contender for winning the Premier League. I would rather see them get into the mix by winning cup competitions first and win some trophies. Then they can start setting their aspirations on winning the Premier League title. Not before then. That's my opinion. I know other folks view it differently where, you know, if they can try to win the Premier League title, everything else will fall into place. I think the more likely scenario for Spurs of what they can concentrate on is try to win some of these trophies. I I think that is the more important barometer in attracting talent than trying to get the outright uh, title win in the Premier League because I think the amount that you would have to commit yourself towards uh, in order to win the Premier League with that kind of squad and the competition you're up against, I think you would have to solely dedicate this uh, Spurs squad to uh, to win uh, to win the Premier League title at the expense of doing well in any of the tournaments. And again, I don't think it's I don't think it, the uh, the cost benefit is really in their favor uh, when you go that route. I, I I you know I just don't see it. I, I think you know you're better off getting the exposure in Cup Finals and have. Uh, and have that exposure uh, to uh, teams uh, seeing them uh, seeing them in there, and you know, I think that's what is uh, what'll track a uh, uh, potential transfer targets uh, to the squad. Seeing them in cup competitions and finals, winning winning trophies, and with a new stadium on board. Things are looking up for Spurs. Like they have the opportunity in this two to three year window of really solidifying themselves as the best London based club because Chelsea's in a in a bit of a pickle and Arsenal still can't quite get out of their own way in terms of some of the signings that they're doing. You know, again, could it work out? Yeah. But I still think that uh you know Spurs has the inside track at the moment. Now, here comes the moment of truth. Who's going to win the Premier League? And I still think it's going to be Manchester City winning the Premier League. And I think it's going to be not nearly as close as it was last year. Uh, Liverpool, I think it's going to be a second place finish again this year. Here's the thing about Liverpool. Their goal is to win the Premier League this year. They're focusing their efforts on winning the Premier League this year. They've won Champions League. The fans are clamoring for Liverpool to win the Premier League title. I think Liverpool's fans would be fine if Liverpool crashed out of the Champions League this year instead of trying to defend the title all the way through if it meant the chance for them to win the Premier League title. It means that much to Liverpool since they've been in the Premier League since inception 
and have never won the Premier League. It is gnawing at them. You know, you're going on, this is going to be year 30 of not winning the Premier League. They want they want the domestic uh, 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 trophy for winning the league. I just don't see it happening. I think with Manchester City and a healthy Kevin and De Bruyne, and when they, you know, they're adding guys like Rodri and Yao Cancelo. Like the problem is, is that Man City is so loaded. Liverpool has to be completely mistake-free, not have injuries, keep Van Dijk uh, uh, in shape and healthy throughout the year, who's been a rock. Believe me, Virgil Van Dijk has been the by far the best investment uh, other than Eden Hazard of the last five years. Uh, from what Southampton was paying him was peanuts. Obviously, he got the big money deal for Liverpool, and he's been worth every single penny. Like I said, the only investment I th- would rank higher than Van Dyke would be Hazard. But the problem I see with Liverpool is the fact that, you know, they didn't make a whole lot of, lot of signings. They, they're, they're banking on keeping the same squad together that won Champions League and have that be enough to win the Premier League title. City upgraded their midfield and uh and fullbacks. I you know, I just think it was a mistake for Liverpool not to at least try to address you know, I you know, I know they love Jordan Henderson, but if Arsenal was able to get Danny Sabalos Liverpool should have at least entertained that possibility because Sabalos is a better player than Jordan Henderson. I don't think that's particularly close. But the fact that Liverpool never even, you know, entertained the thought of possibly trying to upgrade there. I know uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain is coming back healthy this year for Liverpool. But again, I still think that Liverpool was best served getting at least a slight upgrade in holding midfield because they didn't have a gr- they didn't have a particularly great year from uh the trio of Mane, uh Salah and Firmino based on the talent that they have like they there was more to give last year but they were getting by with incredible play defensively and Allison was an absolute beast in net uh at goalkeeper, he was the best goalkeeper in the league uh, last year, without question. You know, David De Gea is great, but Allison, without question, was the best goalkeeper last year, in my opinion. But you know, I I I can't I can't see I can't have Manchester City upgrading their squad, getting back Kevin De Bruyne healthy. And with any realistic face, say there's a, you know, in order for uh, Manchester City to lose the title this year to Liverpool, City's got to have a bunch of injuries. That you know they they would need to lose Kun Aguero, 
for quite a bit of time and have it just be Gabriel Jesus. But I think Gabriel Jesus can put up 30 goals in a season. I think he has that kind of talent. Like, that's the problem with City. Even if City runs into injury issues, they have a quality replacement at the ready to get in there. That's the problem. If Liverpool loses anyone, it's not the same scenario, folks. It really isn't. And that's the problem. I can't I can't give Liverpool benefit of the doubt that, you know, even if they concentrate all their efforts on winning the Premier League title this year, that they can get it done because Manchester City is just that good. You know, Manchester City and Liverpool were neck and neck the entire way through. Man City finished with 98 points. Liverpool, 97 points. It was that close. The problem is, I think Man City can blow past 100 points this year. And if Man City Man City uh, goes over 100 points, there's no way Liverpool's catching them. There's, there's just no way. And that's the problem. I think Manchester City's good enough to do that this year. You know, the only squads that I see realistically taking points off of Man City would be Liverpool and Spurs. Everyone else, I don't see it really happening. That's the problem, is that I know Man City will blitz Arsenal. I know Man City, even though it's a derby, can find ways of getting past United, even if United gets the calls... uh, uh, if they match up in a derby, you know, Chelsea has too many question marks to take points off of Man City. Like Man City can have off days and they'll still get the get job done on the, against the vast majority of the teams in the Premier League. That's the problem Liverpool faces. I don't see enough that Liverpool can do to supplant what Man City can do. Liverpool has almost no margin for error. And Man City has an entire runway to play around with. It's just it's just that simple. So that's the way I see the Premier League playing out this year. Feel free uh, to agree to disagree or uh, give me your suggestions on how the rankings will play out. But that's my preview for the upcoming season. It should be a fun one, uh, especially at the top. I just think that the top squads you know, have enough intrigue that, you know, you're going to see some quality football being played at the top, you know, on the bottom end. Yeah. There are going to be some forgettable performances, but I think once you start getting into that top 10 range, it's going to be very interesting to see how it uh, plays out because that six to nine range, I could see so many possibilities for, how it could play out. And again, I I think, you know, someone amongst the big six is going to have a disappointing year. And I, you know, I, you know, between Chelsea, United, and Arsenal, they all have their separate cases as to why it could all go sideways. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, but, you know, Only time will tell. But uh, that's all for now, folks. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.